attention I can't get no call to action but I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Amy Ferguson. Amy describes herself as a chronic exaggerator, yet her reputation as a creative renegade and rule rewriter needs none of that. She's got the pencils, lions, Cleos and pieces of eight to prove it. She's so impressive, in fact, that Rob Schwartz, aka Blackbeard's sharper-dressed brother Blacksuit, called her a true pirate and an even better human. Currently Chief Creative Officer at the helm of TBWA Chiat Day New York, Amy leads her swashbuckling crew towards brave bounty, taking on conventionally steered ships for clients including Abbott, Hilton, Mountain Dew and Nissan. Amy says, sometimes this job is so much fun, I feel like I'm getting away with something. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was quite an introduction. Good. Right. Seven quick fire questions, Amy. Beer or coffee? Oh my God. That's like picking between my kids. Coffee. (laughs) That's the next question. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, Atlanta or Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Right. Popcorn, sweet or salty? Salty. And butter. Right. Favorite pirate now, Captain Jack Sparrow or Captain Hook? Sparrow. Art director or copywriter? Oh, wow. Art director who can write. Well fielded. Right, two more. Uh, Charlie Day or Eugene Levy? Charlie Day. Uh, And finally, this one's unfair. Fly Babies or Major Millions? Oh, man. Uh, Fly Babies. Nice. (laughs) That was quick. That was too easy. Did I make that too easy? Yeah. (laughs) We'll edit in a long pause. Okay, good. I know you actually began your career as one of TBWA Chiat Day's first residents of the Youngbloods creative campaign or sorry program back in 2004 but on call to action we're all about the weird and wonderful things that happen before people start their careers so before we talk about Youngbloods can you tell us what was your first ever job and then how that evolved into the Youngbloods you mean first ever, like when you're a teenager? Ever, 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 yeah. Ever, ever, ever. Okay. Uh, it was my first and last foray into food service. I worked at a bagel shop. So toasting bagels, lovingly spreading cream cheese, melting things, making coffees. Uh, so that was like one summer, maybe right before senior year of high school. And I, I got a taste of food service and I said, nope, not for me. <laughs> Melt, I love melting things. Is that on the job description? <laughs> there, there wasn't, but they had this very cool melter. I'm not kidding. It was like a metal thing and you lifted it up and you put the, the bagel and the cheese and it, it, like, it was like a melter. I think it has another name, like maybe a salamander it's called. I don't know, but it was like only for melting. Yeah, yeah. I prefer melter. Lovely. Okay. And, and so what was so off-putting about that? Because you had a melter. 
I had, did have a melter. That was that was a highlight of that job. But yeah, I mean, you're on your feet all day. Uh, you have to deal with the public, which is terrible. And food, food is gross. And that wasn't even like the grossest of foods. You know, there was no fryer. Like I didn't have to do that kind of stuff, but it was still cream cheese. And I don't know. It wasn't, it was not for me. And and then um, did you have any other jobs whilst you were studying, whilst you were at college or whatever the equivalent may have been? Yes, I did camp. I was a camp counselor. So I uh, worked with kids. I've always liked kids. So that that was actually a better fit for me. And I would do all the art stuff and make up games. And like there was, you know, you can use creativity there, but you do have to tolerate children in that job. So that's not for everybody either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spotting a pattern. And, and what did you study then? So um, you mentioned creativity there, of course. Was that always important? Yeah, I think I always knew. I was always into art. I was always into performances. I may I would make like little newspapers when I was young. My sister and I used to perform commercials for each other, which is like sort of terrifying, like how close that is to what I'm actually doing. But uh, I always knew I always knew I would do something creative. So when I went to college, I majored in communication because it was such a small school. They didn't you couldn't specialize really. Like there wasn't a journalism program, there wasn't an advertising program. But I did take an like a principles of advertising class. And I remember I had to write a Lexus commercial and I really liked that. Like there's what I liked coming up with that, with that idea and writing that. So that, that struck me. Um, you know, I did some screenwriting in college. I did, I worked on the yearbook. I did some radio kind of like touched everything. And I was really interested in art history and art. So I did a photography minor and I sort of thought, okay, maybe I'll do this photography thing. And then when I graduated college, I realized I had no skills and was completely unprepared for the workforce and had like a few pretty terrifying interviews where I was like, is this it? Like, this can't be it. I don't know what I'm doing. So I was home. I had moved back to Atlanta and I heard about this school called the Creative Circus. I looked at it. I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely it. And I, But I was looking for photography. And then I read their description of art direction and I was like, that is me. You know what I mean? Like it just spoke to me. So I, I flipped, I, I submitted some photography just to be like, look, I'm a visual person, but, um, I joined the art direction program and that was, and it was pretty immediate that I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm doing the right thing. Like I get this. It's hard. It's interesting. I'm good at it. I didn't consider writing just because I had always done photography and art and it was more, I was more of a visual person, but I sometimes wonder if maybe writing could have also worked. Yeah. I suppose the, um, I suppose the visual component part was such, it was so significant. And I, and I assume when you were acting out ads with your sister, it was all very, well, I'm assuming it was all very theatrical. Yes. Very performative, but, but clever, clever, you know, clever storylines also. So I think I kind of ride the line between both and always have. Yeah, that's good to know. I, I mean, I've always thought that it's quite, it can be quite blurry between the two anyway. And, and there's so many pros and cons to even dealing with uh, creative teams and having to fit people into pre-shaped holes anyway and define them as one or the other. So it's really encouraging to hear that. So how did you get into Youngbloods? How did that all come together? So let's see, I finished ad school. I had a partner that I wanted to work with. We actually got a different internship. It was a publicist internship in Seattle. And 
we had a few job local job offers like there was something in florida and there was something in atlanta but we we had bigger dreams so we went we moved across the country to seattle and we didn't really want to be on the west coast so that wasn't great but we were like hey this is cool we'll do this for three months and then the shiat program came knocking so we actually quit the publicist internship in the middle of it. They were not happy. And we moved to New York and started as Youngbloods. I read that it was the hardest you've ever worked. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, the the work sort of environment was really tough. It was, it was competitive. It was sort of make or break, you know, sink or swim. It, there wasn't a lot of like mentorship in place. So it was, just, it was just a different time. And then the the amount that we worked was staggering. So like all-nighters, pretty standard. 3 a.m., no problem. And like definitely work until 10, like pretty regularly. So we lived there. I mean, we lived there. And it was really hard, but I learned a ton and met amazing people. And, you know, do I want people to work like that now that I'm in the place? No, but I have to look at it as a valuable experience because it was, you know, and it set me up for the rest of my career, really. And for anyone who's, who's unsure, including myself, what's actually involved in that Young Bloods program? Because you're literally, you're in the trenches, you're working on live briefs with other teams. Yeah, I mean, the original one was straight up just you're in the creative department. So, and I think in some ways that that can work really well, right? Because we were just tossed in, we were sitting among everybody, we were put on briefs, just like we weren't, I mean, they called us, they might've called us the young bloods or the interns, like everyone knew, but pe- we, people cracked briefs all the time. Like it wasn't, oh, we'll give you like this fake assignment that's not real. It was like presenting the clients and everything. So that was more of, yeah, you're just right in it. Now I, the program went away somewhere along the line. You know, I left Triad. I haven't been at Triad this whole time. And then a couple of years ago, when we as an agency were looking at our DEI and what we could do to make an impact, I pitched to bring back the Youngbloods, but to update it and sort of look at it through a DEI lens. So I, you know, I wanted to keep some of the stuff that I thought was super important and super successful from when I did the program, which was being in the heart of the creative department, being on real briefs. And then I also really thought the six of us, that we kind of became a unit and a, and a tight group. And I felt like that was really important, especially when you're talking about bringing in, you know, people from historically marginalized groups to have sort of a little community within the department felt really important. So like, those were things that I was like, okay, let's keep this from the old one. But the things that I felt like we didn't have were sort of a direct mentor. You know what I mean? Somebody to be like, what is a, what is a mix? Like, how does that work? Like just people to ask questions to, because they, you know, they sort of just tossed us in and we had to figure it out. And so I, I felt like let's add some of that. So we added, you know, everybody had a buddy, everybody had a mentor. And then we also added, which was really successful was like, these weekly classes where people and agency leaders from all departments would give like a lecture Q and a kind of thing about how to present or how does an advertising agency make money? How should you evaluate a brief? You know, how do you find the best swipe? 
all kinds of classes that was all people from within the agency that could, you know, share their point of view. So I felt like that adding a little bit of education also helped because we were specifically not looking for people who went to ad school. Well, it's proper deep end stuff. I mean, I wonder, I wonder uh, retrospectively what you would have done differently, knowing what you know now, if you would, if you could repeat that experience, would you have behaved in a, in a different way, do you think? Or do you think it was just a sign of the times and the context dictated that you were having to do late nights? And I think the, I think the context did dictate that. And I think that was sort of the way that the place was run. What I wish I knew, and I think, I think it was a, it was sort of a more of a fear-based environment. And like, I just didn't thrive in that. That's just not me. Some people did. Some people loved the competition, but it wasn't, it wasn't great for me. And I, I just wish I could go back and, and just remind myself, like, speak up, you know, you are good at this. You're here for a reason, you know, sort of try to instill some confidence in that young me. Because that that was one of the things that I really struggled with. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my experience, uh, I mean, th- what you've added to that sounds absolutely wonderful and ideal, and just the significance of having a mentor or a buddy or however you articulate that is is huge. Just someone who can take the fear away from asking what you perceive to potentially be a dumb question. Um, there's so much value to that. We always try and encourage new starters here to ask as many dumb questions as they can, so it becomes more of a competition. I mean, that can get out of hand. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That's a good idea, though. Who can ask the dumbest question? Well, it's, it's that crippling fear, isn't it? And I'm sure it affects everyone in every industry whenever you're starting something new and something might be unfamiliar. It's probably inherently human to not want to stand out and be the one that asks something potentially silly. But there's also great power in it. And I know that um, even when we're talking about finding creative solutions, Rory Sutherland will often talk about the, the significance of asking dumb questions. Everyone's asked all the other questions. So let's be playful and ask some silly ones because there might be some gold. Very true. It, it happens to me still. Like, you know, I'm in business. I'm, I've, you know, in places where I'm not totally familiar, right? I'm not only talking about creative anymore. And there are definitely moments where I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I still have the little like, oh, do I want to look stupid? But I'm like, ah, fine, I'll look stupid. What are they going to say? <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. One of the reasons why we planned this podcast episode is because at GASP, we, we simply cannot get enough of your Mountain Dew campaign, uh, especially the really short ad, which I've shared widely it's everything that, that I adore about advertising in one spot. And sadly, it's all too rare to find it in the wild. So we will link to that in this podcast listing. Can you talk through the ad and how it came to be and, and just the importance of leaning into humour uh, in advertising? Because I think that, sadly, is, is almost too often dismissed or perhaps has been in recent years. Yeah. I mean, humour has always... Uh, been my natural love language, I guess we would say. Um, and I think for advertising, it's a it's a natural fit. Now, I'm not saying you can't do emotional ads, and obviously you can, and people have done it well. But you know, people don't really want to watch ads. Like that's what we have to remember, and I think we forget. So I think they forgive the giant logo at the end more when it when they when it makes you laugh. And, and so I've always, I've always leaned on that. And I've always been fortunate to work on, on brands that want to do it. I mean, that's the other thing about working on a brand like Mountain Dew, which I've done for the last three years, I guess, three or four years, you know, they, they lean so heavily in that world and the consumer wants it. 
like they expect it. So it's, you know, a little bit of the perfect storm. And that and that's usually how I think the best work comes is like you have the right creatives on it, you have the right cultural context, and you have the right client, right? And the right brand. So for that, for that new campaign, you know, we've done, we had done some, we've done work on, on Mountain Dew for a few years, but they did want to pull together something that was a little bit more consistent, right? Which is how we ended up with a spokesperson type character. And they wanted to uh, attract a Gen Z audience. So we, that kind of opened the door for us to really push the humor because Gen Z is, is so smart and so savvy in terms of like media, in terms of brands talking to them, like look at TikTok, you know, they're making funnier content than we are. So we felt like we have to, we have to make fun of ourselves and we have to be self-aware as a brand that says, we know we're a commercial and we know we do stupid shit and you know it too. So let's laugh about it together. So once we sort of like landed, and I honestly, if I can remember, I think the short form, the one you're talking about, might've been one of the first ones, right? Because we, the way we wrote them is we were like, let's just find tropes. That was the thing we kept saying, but like things that people do in ads or do in marketing that is familiar. And, you know, all of us in advertising constantly joke about how the ads are getting shorter and shorter because they are, right? Like, I don't know, four years ago or whenever it was, time is but a construct. They were like, uh, you know, they started asking for these six second ads and we were all like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? We can't do something in six seconds. So obviously we've had to figure out how to do it. There was something really satisfying about poking fun of that in an ad. And then, you know, the cherry on top is we got Charlie Day and also it's Mountain Dew. Like it just, it all sort of fell together beautifully. Yeah, I mean, you make it sound simple. I'm sure it wasn't, but it, but it certainly did fall together very, very well. And I think Charlie Day is just ideal. Absolutely perfect. He, he really did a nice job. I, I, like, the, I like the line you, you said at the start of that. If you use humor, they forgive the logo at the end. There's a great Walt Disney quote. You have to entertain people in the hope that they learn something. Because if you try and do it the other way around, it's not going to work. I mean, I've butchered that quote, but it's along those lines. And I think that this, it's all too often forgotten in Adland. And I think we're very guilty of over-intellectualizing the craft. And there's people like Paul Feldwick, who uh, we spoke to on the show a few months ago, author of uh, Why Does the Peddler Sing and The Art of Humbug. And that showmanship and playful nature of ads that used to kind of weave their way into society and into culture probably more readily than they do nowadays was all about being the clown. And I think it's just such an important thing to think of, of, of ads for the general public, ads for real people, and forgiving the logo at the end if you've entertained them or offered them something of value via entertainment. It's just a, a really, really good way of articulating it. I think we end up in these, you know, we're, are, we're so hyper-focused on, you know, our little, let's say, 30 seconds, 30 second ad. Right. And so and we're trying to infuse as much creativity and as much thinking and as much storytelling in that in that place. But you have to kind of remember, right, you got to step way out and remember somebody's going to be watching this when they're folding laundry and, 
you know, in between whatever shows they're watching, a kid is screaming. Like, I think we forget that nobody's seeking this out. They don't want to see people fast forward through ads. My husband fast forwards through ads. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's part of what pays the bills here, which is, <laughs> which is a, always a funny thing, but you know, and then I'm like, stop, go back. I want to see that one. But I think, I think we forget, we forget that. And we forget that they know consumers know that they're being advertised to. I mean, it was, you know, I think advertising is always on the list of like least trustworthy professions because we're trying to sell. We're always trying to sell. So I, I, I really liked and found it freeing to sort of just own that in the, in the Mountain Dew stuff, you know, and that brand allows for it. Like you couldn't do that on everything, obviously. So that's sort of the perfect storm like, oh, this, this works really well for the situation and for the brand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and you're totally right that, they don't want to watch your ad. It's one of those. It's one of those harsh truths that people need to uh, to to learn as 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 early as possible. That state of indifference that people are in when we try and win their attention. At Gasp, we had a very talented American uh, client partner called Claire from Kansas work for us for a couple of years, and she would she would regularly share the mayhem ads which we wrote about a few years ago. I'm not sure if they're still running nowadays, but they were they were very well crafted, I believe. Yeah, the, that was, I mean, the the interesting thing about that and about kind of even Charlie Day, but is like trying to find a, a character or a recurring, that's something that the clients are always asking for, right, is a consistency. And I think for creatives, it goes against our fiber. Like we, we kind of want the, the world, the options are endless. You know, we don't want to be boxed into anything. So I always, I'm always impressed when people are able to find something that's recurring, right? So that it's, you know, it's going to help with brand recall. It's going to make the client happy. It's going to help people recognize the ads, but at the same time to also do that in a creative, fresh way is, is impressive. And that, that was a, a very nice job. Yeah, absolutely. Are you finding the mid going back to these, um, these ads, are you finding that the media choices that you're making are becoming more complex than perhaps when you first started in the industry because I know one of the ads with Charlie Day playing the piano was specifically made for TikTok do you embrace that new form of media as part of the mix or is it just another hurdle that can trip us up no I mean I think we we have we have to I think you know maybe 10 years ago we were all sort of like eh, whatever but like <laughs> this is it guys like this is it <laughs> So even even to to for them for for our target to be Gen Z and for us even to be thinking in TV maybe isn't exactly right. You know what I mean? Like who is who is actually sitting down and, and watching TV anymore? I mean, sports is kind of the one thing, right? So we had the NBA execution. So that one makes sense because that that runs in all the games. And so I, you know, that people are gonna see that. But I think I think the TV, thinking about TV in the traditional way, uh, is like long over. You know, we 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 used to joke like when I came, when I was a young blood, we would get like three weeks, you know, to deliver uh, a presentation of like four TV spots, and so we would have you know we would post up on the wall, and it would just be it would just be scripts. You would literally just spend three weeks writing five scripts. Now it's like 
you know, one week and you have to deliver 16 different executions across every platform. And now we got to be specific to platform, right? Talking about TikTok, like you can't do the same thing that you do on Instagram on TikTok. So it's, it's super complex, but I mean, the only way that, that you can make it in this business is to find that exciting, I think. I mean, and see an opportunity in everything. And not that everything has to be, let's spend three weeks on it and figure it out, but everything should be an opportunity to deliver something creative or satisfying or funny or you know, something that helps the brand. Yeah, well said. We ran some retargeting ads for a client once, uh, recently even, and they were adamant they wanted to use some retargeting ads but their brand is very much wit and humor and we said well we're only going to run these ads if we're allowed to take the piss out of retargeting ads about us stalking people around the internet so fine but the point there being is the brief has to be if brand x in their tone and all of their branded attributes that you associate with them are going to do anything on this channel what does that look like and why yes exactly and then you really have to think about because i think for i think we're still we're all still figuring this out but like it's not, you can't just take the TV spot and pack it up for that format. And, you know, I am, I am guilty of spending way too much time on TikTok. And so, but I, which I think is good because I, then I'm like, oh, right. When I, the minute I see a commercial, I'm like, skip. Like, it's so obvious that it's a brand that's talking to you. And I don't, I haven't seen, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to crack TikTok. I mean, everybody's trying to figure it out, but the other thing, the Charlie Day thing was not, but that we had Charlie Day. So that helps us. But it, you know, it felt right. I mean, I think you have to, you have to show up to those, to those platforms and, and try to join the platform, you know, and like be one of the people on the platform. And that's the only way the consumers, the people there are going to accept you, you know, is that you do it, you do it well, you Instagram well, or you TikTok well, but you can't just show up and put an ad there and think anybody's going to care. Well, I'm going to keep quoting you, Amy, but they need to forgive the logo at the end, don't they? So yeah. <laughs> exactly. Applies, whatever, whatever channel. We're talking about TV ads there. So I don't think there's any bigger celebration, certainly in Adland, of TV ads than the Super Bowl. Uh, but your recent ad for Nissan made Adweek's top 10 best Super Bowl ads of 2022. So um, congratulations for that, firstly. Um, can you talk to us about that ad and what goes into making a good Super Bowl ad? Yeah, Super Bowl is... is uh... It's a different beast. And I, I was thinking a little bit about this because I had I saw that question on the list because I've, I've done also prior to that, the major, major millions. And then prior to that, we did like a Shining remake for Mountain Dew. And I think if you look at the at the Mountain Dew, the two Mountain Dew examples, because um, I was a little closer to those, there's kind of two ways that you can try and win the Super Bowl, right? Everybody wants to win the Super Bowl. I think you can you can go like, all right, let's just go good old fashioned spot and like just hope that we've got the best script and the funniest surprise and like the best cameo and the best celebrity. And, you know, and we we tried that on with with uh, The Shining or and this is becoming more popular is like, how do you hack it or like flip it on its head? Right. So that's what we tried to do with Major Millions is like, all right you know, on its own, I don't think the spot breaks the top 10 because it's not, it's not written to make people laugh. It was more informational. But when you pair it with this contest that we launched on Twitter for a million dollars and like used the spot to give that information, then, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're winning 
winning that way. And it's all sort of a giant, very expensive bet. And, you know, it's super fraught and there's so many layers and so many things. I mean, it, it's so fun and so exciting, but it's so much work. And, um, and it is really scary. I mean, it is scary. I haven't had a, you know, some, a disaster, but I, you know, I think I can see how terrible that would be. So with Nissan, I think it kind of straddled the line, which I like. I liked that about that spot is that it was funny. It was satisfying. It was like good old fashioned Super Bowl advertising. Had a great, you know, some funny cameos and great music. It had some explosions. Like it had all the stuff, the trappings of a great Super Bowl ad. But at the same time, we did have like this kind of 360 surrounding really clever campaign about this, you know, fake or uh, fictional movie, which is what the commercial was about. So there was movie posters and there was um, a, a Eugene Levy action figure like in his crazy when he looked like a badass. So I think that one kind of did both, right? It wasn't, you, you kind of, I don't know if you can really anymore just do the just do the great advertising. I mean, people do, and then they win. And then the other thing that's that's crazy about the Super Bowl is like you that audience. That's really everybody. <laughs> so it's really, really, uh, you know, to make something that everybody likes is is super hard and super hard for us. I think because you know we want to be edgy and different and push the humor. It's really it's a it's a tricky one. It's a super tricky one. And then this year, the the QR code was the thing that everybody was talking about, right? And that was refreshing to me. I mean, I was on, I was team QR code. I thought that was really clever. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only last week, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and lead generation. But we're not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. Marketing is incredibly confused with sales. I think you're the one who's more confused, Gary V. Sunshine. Yeah. No, I Here think, we go. I think, um, I think you struck on something there which, which I wouldn't disagree with about the days of just making a great ad. I mean, when I think about Super Bowl ads and ads that I've adored over the last few years, I I will always go back to Darth Vader, which I think was, was that 2011 Volkswagen, just because it was a great ad, but there's nothing there about hacking in the same way that you could say Major Millions hacked the Super Bowl or or even Tide going back a few years, everything being mm-hmm. a Tide ad. I mean, there's there's been so many really intelligent ways of getting ahead of the game. Yeah. And so that that's the thing. It's like, which which route are you going to go? Which bet are you going to place? Try and try and do the Darth Vader or try and, and break the thing. Or maybe you kind of try and do both. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always wary of subjectivity anyway in, in, in advertising in as much as you're not going to make an ad that pleases everyone necessarily or everyone finds humorous and entertaining. But actually, sometimes we can be guilty of trying to do that at the expense of the effectiveness of a campaign. So, and yet Super Bowl is probably the one time of year where you've got such reach. It's almost the biggest stage where you you are, whether you like it or not, inviting 
greater levels of subjectivity that exist in any other time, like at the moment of the year. Well, yeah, that's so. The other, the other thing I always say is like, this is the one time they do want to see the ads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is when people are like, oh, have you seen? People are talking about ads. If you if you work in this business, and you know, your parents, my parents would love to tell people, oh, my daughter has an ad. You know, that's that's the thing where everyone finally gets what what we do for a living. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so rare, and I think it's increasingly rare. But actually, I use that in a talk that I give about the, you know, my opinion that you don't need to necessarily be liked to be effective or advertising to be liked. We have a character in the UK called Gio Campario, who's this big, silly, opera-singing guy. Probably one of the least liked, if not, it's fair to say, hated ad mascots of recent years. And yet, to quote my elderly mother, I hate that guy, but whenever I need insurance, I think of him. <laughs> so, right, uh, there's the memorable, we had like the Aflac, the duck that like would say Aflac, like, and, you know, it's just like an it thing that like sticks with you for some reason, which, yeah, I mean, who knows? Every, we're all just trying to make people remember us, I guess. So maybe that's, maybe that's the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think it's the ideal way. I think everyone would like to be, you know, the other side of the spectrum and, and, and be liked and remembered for that, but, but it's not necessary. Um, the be all and end all. Rob mentioned something to me, Rob Schwartz mentioned something to me about your philosophy to do good work, have fun, go home. And I think that's a really important philosophy to have. And it's probably a very difficult one to adopt, certainly maybe in yesteryear. Um, and I know we touched on it briefly when we were talking about young bloods. But is that something that you have always adopted or you've learned that actually it's great to take pride and to work hard? But we also need to balance that. I think, yeah. I mean, I think for for so long when I couldn't really control the the system or the process, you know, I just I put my head down and I worked and I worked till three a.m. You know, a lot. And then when I became a creative director, I, I a tried to make it fun, right? Because I had I hadn't I hadn't always had fun when I was working, uh, so I tried to make it. Fun. I always tried to make the work good because I think that everybody gets behind that. But the ability to try and control the system to say, no, we're not going to work the weekend on that, right? Or we need to push this meeting so that people can have a weekend, right? And, you know, I wasn't instantly able to do that. And I had to, I had to learn how to push back or learn how to change the schedule so that so that I, I could foresee maybe a working weekend coming and I would change things so that people did have a weekend. It, it was it was always something that was super important to me because I just hated it when I was doing it. I don't think it's necessary. I really do not. I do not think that we have to work as much as we have in the past. I think if you if you have a clear goal, if everybody's agreed on a brief, if you have a creative director or a creative leader who can make decisions and stick to them, you know, of course there's pitches, of course there's disaster meetings where you have to change that. And so I think, you know, we know those are going to happen. So in the day to day, let's not do the crazy shit so that we, when we do have to do those, we, you know, we can be forgiven. Like, it's not like we're asking people to work every weekend. It's just insanity. And with creative people, right, how can you be creative when you're unhappy, when you're overworked, when you're tired? You know, the, that those sort of conditions are not 
great conditions for work. And I think, you know, it also happens that we're coming out of a pandemic where people are really focused on, on mental health. And I think young people, right, the talent isn't going to do it. I mean, that's what I always say. I'm like, they're going to leave. Like they don't, it's not like when I was, when I was coming up, I just, it was like, we wanted to do this. And so we were going to do it and this was paying our dues. And so that I didn't know there would be another option, but I just, I don't think that people want to be in advertising enough to go through that in the same way that people in my generation did. Yeah, I think you're right. There's two points there for, uh, from my side. I think one, you're right that the pandemic has probably changed the context and perhaps there's, there's, there's few good things to have come from the last couple of years in that respect. But I think one of them is a greater understanding of mental health in the workplace. And I think as we gradually return to work in whatever guise we do, that I, I believe that's been taken into account more than more than before. Whether we've nailed it yet, I don't think that's necessarily something that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think it's it's encouraging nonetheless. And your second point about people will leave us, you're right. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier about people in Adland and ad execs not being as respected as perhaps once they were. I don't have the US data, but the UK data from Ipsos certainly demonstrates that we're not only in the bottom three, we're in the we're rock bottom behind you know, politicians <laughs> and all sorts of people who you would like to think we have a slightly higher moral uh, standpoint than. And, and the, the two have to be factored in. That's crazy. But yes, it's, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And then personally, you know, once I had kids, I didn't, I, it was, it became increasingly important for me. And then I know as a leader, setting that tone is super important. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, becoming a mum. I mean, being a mum of a mum of three and doing the job that you're doing is, is, is incredible. I remember talking to Cindy Gallup maybe three or four years ago now, and we were talking about how incredible like mums are at managing so much stuff and it was only when I had kids of my own my eldest is I mean she's only six that I suddenly looked around and thought shit how, how do single mums cope and actually returning to work after maternity leave which understandably lots of people seem to I say understandably that seem to struggle with the lack of opportunity but actually if you hire mums they're going to find it a breeze <laughs> versus the amount of things they have to manage day in, day out. I actually think, I, I think that there is such an argument for more moms higher up be, because of that. Because like right, literally right now, I am thinking of and accomplishing 7,000 things. Like there's a birthday party this weekend. I got to do the target order. We got to get pampers. What about the summer camp? Like, and then also work. So I think the the multitasking brain of a mom, and that's not every mom. And obviously we're, we're generalizing, but I, it's, it's pretty amazing. So like when I stepped into the CCO role, I can't, it kind of like was a natural fit because of that, because that's what it is. You're just the mom of the agency. Like there's, you got to take care of these people. Oh, there's this thing happening. Have you looked at this script? Da, da, da. You know, it's just, it's, it's like doing that all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's slightly relentless, but it is, it does fit me more maybe than I expected it to because of that, because a, 
that the mom thing. But then the other thing I always say about being a CCO is it's it's a little bit like an ADD brain, which I also have, which is like, all right, jump over here. Let's take a look. All right, bye, someone else. I'm going over here, you know, and then and you're just constantly the amount of stuff that you intake is so is so crazy, but you don't really ever go super deep. You know, I mean, you're not in the weeds anymore. So it, it's a different, it's a different thing, but I was like pleasantly surprised that my brain was at least suited to it. I'm definitely still figuring out how to, how to balance it all. I mean, balance is such a fucking bullshit concept anyway, but it's super hard. I mean, it's super hard. I always say, please don't anyone think that I'm trying to say it's easy. It is super hard every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well said. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions for you, Amy. All right. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but we do have two for you. I'm going to start with James. James asks, what's your favourite classic TBWA ad? There's so many good ones. There's so many good ones. I might be impartial, but all the the Skittles and Starburst, Starburst stuff that came out of... New York. Um, so that was when I was a young blood. So I was not involved in it, but I was like there. And I just, I had never seen anything like it. It was so funny. And I, I think that was like my introduction into like stupid in a good way. Like we still, we still say like, oh, that's so stupid. And it's like a high praise because, and that is what, that was the other thing I liked about that was that that kind of knew it was an ad, you know, it wasn't trying to be anything else. It was just like, Let's make, and that, talk about Forgive the Logo. I mean, people sought those out. You know what I mean? Those were those were fantastic. So that's sort of, I hold, I always hold that up also because I was there when it happened and it, it just kind of hit at the right moment in my young creative life as like, wow, that's the kind of work that that I'd like to do. Yeah, that's, that's definitely on my shortlist as well. I have a feeling we're a similar age, Amy, and that was definitely on my shortlist for similar reasons. But I, but I also love uh, Double Life stuff for PlayStation, which... Uh, just by coincidence, I happened to someone shared it with me again about a month ago prior to us uh, knowing that we were going to talk on the pod. And it was just so well put together. And the script is so perfect that it could run today. I mean, it's wonderful. There's, I mean, it's, I always, I always say to when I talk to talent and stuff, I'm like, the thing about working at an agency like this is like strong creative is in the bones of this place. Like we have to do it where I don't think that's true at all agencies, especially big, like holding company agencies, I think you can do it, but I don't think it's like as much in the DNA of the place. And so I feel like that makes our job a little bit easier because we already know, well, it's shy. We have to do great work. Okay. We're starting there. Yeah, very true. Very true. And if I didn't know better, I would have thought you've seen the second question. Oh, (laughs) really? (laughs) Stephanie asks, how do you as a leader make sure the work at TBWA Chite Day stays true to the amazing creative standard that's a part of the agency's DNA? Wow. I think I've said exactly that to the agency. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, I think what I have, tr- I have, I, what I hope I have shown in my career is that I, I can do good work. I can champion good work. I can make good work. Like I think the good work part, not that it's easy, but hopefully, you know, the, the, the people that you have and the opportunities that you have can bring, can bring that work 
can bring that work to the surface. So I see my job as sort of identifying the opportunities where I know we can really swing for the fences and then just, just keeping an eye on them and making sure that everybody who's actually in it isn't too far in it and isn't, you know, missing, missing the boat a little bit, or, you know, make sure that we're really, really pushing. But the thing that I, the thing that I'm more focused on is like, how do we continue to do that level of work without, but not at the expense of everybody's mental health, of everybody's sanity. So, you know, I, that's where, where I'm at is like, I'm trying to create the conditions so that work can happen, but in no way can I be the person that brings about that work in every situation. Like that's just not sustainable. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I have done good work. Sure. But I'm not, a, you know, the person that's going to walk into every room and unearth, you know, ah, blah, 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 here you go. And, you know, make it perfect. So I think. Yeah, it's not all on Amy. No, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So to me, it's more about figuring out an environment that will make work like that inevitable or as close to inevitable as possible. Very good answer. Uh, the final part of the interview then, Amy, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Mm, it's so annoying because I, like, I would love to go back and say, be more confident, but that wouldn't be received well because like, that's not a thing that you can tell someone and then they're like, you're right, I should be more confident. You can't just dial that up. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'll take care of that. Thanks. I think that maybe I would say, you know, you're in the, you're in the right place and maybe speak up once in a while. I think I, I think I was, I was sort of too quiet. That's not a problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what Rob says about that. Oh um, God. Yeah. He knows. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, then if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Pitches. Yes. Well said. I just think they're so hard and so crazy you know, they burn people, but the other, I have always personally struggled because I can't, I don't want to do the work in a vacuum. Like I'm always like, I don't, I don't know if this is what they want. So like, I am actually, I'm listening to the clients. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what do they want? And then how do I give it to them in a way that's, you know, going to be amazing, but without their inputs, it always felt a little crazy to me. And then to, to blow out, you know, these giant campaigns just, just to say, okay, now will you pay us? It's just like a crazy way to work. And we've been doing it for so long that we're so used to it, but it is bananas. Like it's not, it's not normal. Nobody else works this way. No, well said. I had a, I had a good discussion with uh, Luke Sullivan of uh, Hey Whipple fame a few weeks ago about pitches because We've got a very strong stance as an agency and as much as we don't pitch, we, we've won work off the back of refusing to pitch before. And I think sadly, which doesn't necessarily mean we're wonderful, I'm not trying to preach or anything. And I think it's very easy for a tiny independent to take that type of stance. But there are so many things historically that agencies have allowed that I think moving away from that uh, is, is obviously going to be tough. But I think it's important that we do. And I think it's important that we value the work and the expertise and the value that we deliver to clients. Uh, so to give it away freely or speculatively just has never really sat well with me. No, same. And we're, you know, I'm finally at a place where I can kind of 
be involved in those decisions. And in, at, at our agency, we are actively moving away from, from pitches and, and trying to find other ways, organic growth and, you know, even proactively reaching out and, you know, and also maybe, maybe it's a pitch, but it's not rounds and rounds of work. And, you know, a, you know, it's a, a strategic conversation and, you know, things like that, that is a little bit less, here's everything. And then the other thing about here's everything is it usually goes right in the trash can and you start over. So it's just like, what? This is crazy. I mean, the, the only thing that the pitches, they were terrible, um, but there, there was always a nice energy. So, you know, if you could, if we could figure out a way to replicate some of the pitch energy without all the, the madness and the weekends and the 3 a.m.s and then the, you know, the burn. Sometimes pitch teams feel really fun and you're in the trenches and everybody, you know, and it's quick, it's a quick dash and that's, that stuff is, is nice, but it's just, it's too hard and it's too hard on the people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talked um, with our listener question from Stephanie, you talked about how you, you can only create the conditions for great work to happen. And I think pitches to me anyway, don't often allow or afford the, the conditions required to effectively answer a client's problem because the problems are almost always strategic and you can't just knock out a strategy in a couple of weeks but I don't know there's, there's pros and cons in my experience when you talk to clients actually because I think uh, I think agencies like ours are, are often too quick to blame clients but actually when you start talking to clients about why you don't think the pitch process is best suited to, to, to helping them ultimately I, we've had some wonderful conversations and I think it's important to have those grown up conversations with, with clients because cl why would clients fight to change something that's existed because to them it's the norm. So I think there's a lot of finger pointing when actually I think agencies do need to uh, take, take more of a stance. So it's great to know that, that that's the case. Yeah. And I think because the other thing that we try to really do is like value the, the partnership. Right. And so I think that's what we what we're trying to sell is like come and work with us like look who we are these are people that you want to work with we're going to listen with you together we're going to make something where the pitch thing just feels like a vendor you know like hey buy these ads you don't like them how about these ones okay we have a third angle also it's just like this is not how i want to work and it's not a great way to work so for them you know so i mean i think if it's if it's thoughtfully communicated um they should be receptive. And I think it also does, it takes a stand of sort of who you are as an agency. Like we aren't these people. So if these are the people you want, this is not, this is not going to be a match. Yeah. It also assumes the client knows the correct answer. And I'm not saying they don't, but to me, the answer is always the process of working together with a client. It's never the thing that you're showing and hoping they nod their heads and say, yes, that's the answer because, you know, neither side can necessarily know. I'm not you know, pointing fingers. Number three, Amy, uh, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i not a big work-related reader um, because it's just like too much advertising. Like at some point, I can't talk about advertising anymore. Um, as podcast, I'm happy to do it. No, I'm a, I am a fiction, I'm a fiction reader. So I try to read uh, a little bit every night. Unfortunately, my TikTok habit is getting in the way of that, but I'm <laughs> working on it. I am working on it. What's funny is that, you know, I have this, this crazy job and I have these three kids. So I, I keep a book on my nightstand and I, I try to read to fall asleep. Unfortunately, most nights I read about two pages. 
uh, and fall asleep. So it takes me approximately seven months to read one, one book, but I'm doing it. I'm, I'm going through it. I am reading the new Colson Whitehead. Is that his name? He is, this is his third book. He's a black author from Brooklyn. And this is sort of a Harlem story about a robbery, but his characters are really interesting. Um, he wrote Underground Railroad, which was fascinating, where he imagined, you know, the the Underground Railroad of like slave times as a real railroad. That was like, yeah, so it was cool. Like he he's super talented and um, his books are really compelling. So I need stories that pull me in because I'm going to be reading it for seven months <laughs> due to my reading. <laughs> You're reading stories in real time. <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. So, um, but yes, I'm, I'm reading that one right now and I, I can report back, I guess, in October when I finish it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Do you have any advertising books just out of interest that were significant to you whilst you were starting out or even more recent? Uh, I mean, Hey Whipple was, was amazing. I read that in ad school. I feel like that's sort of a classic. And actually recently I had a copywriter ask, can I expense a copy? And uh, it gave us the idea that we should just buy a copy for everybody in the creative department. Cause I think, so we did. So, you know, everybody got a copy. I think it's, it's a little bit of a Bible, that one. And then let's see, there was this, there was this big, like coffee table book. What was it called? It might've just been called the best ads that I, that I just poured through in ad school. Um, and I feel like I came, I came into the, to the industry at like a really interesting time because it was just so print focused, like, and these just beautiful iconic print ads that like, we just don't get to do those as much anymore. Uh, and that, that was kind of, the focus of ad school then. I don't know what they do in ad school anymore. They write in TikToks, but like we were, all we did was come up with print ads again and again. Like that was the brief and it did force you and it still does force you to, to fit it, you know, on a page. What is the idea on a page? And um, so there was, it was like a guy, I think his head was in a toilet. No, his mouth was a toilet. That was the book. Uh, does that ring a bell? No, not at all. But anyway, there, it's a great, it was just like a beautiful um, coffee table book of like every great print ad it, from that era. It's it's probably like a time capsule from like the early 2000s. I'm going to try and dig that out. I'm going to try and dig that out so we can include links to that. Uh, but we'll also include links to the other two, including um, Hey Whipple, which I think is, I think the sixth edition has just come out. Luke, when he was on the pod, was trying to discourage our listeners from pre-ordering it because he he advised they wait a few weeks because the price was going to come down. <laughs> it was <laughs> so the most sweet. beautifully honest piece of advice. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then number four, Amy, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I will dedicate this episode to Rob Schwartz. He is has been a great mentor to me um, and he introduced me to you. So without him, this is not happening. I, I think I might, have to, I might have to validate this, but I think Rob is the first person to have two episodes dedicated to him. Wow. So he's going to get really big headed if he, I think George Tannenbaum dedicated his episode to Rob too. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, Rob is, you know, he's such a great guy. His head can be a little bigger. That's fine. (laughs) 
What's he really like? Come on, you can tell us. He's amazing. I mean, he's he's such a he's such a good dude. He's such a good dude. Well, that's a, that, this episode is very proudly dedicated to to Rob Schwartz. So as a, as a final call to action, everyone listening, if you head over to this episode, you'll find links to everything we've discussed from the Mountain Dew ads to Major Millions to all sorts of weird and wonderful things that we've spoken about. How else can they get more Amy Ferguson? Well, I, I haven't written a book yet and I don't plan to. <laughs> uh, people, A lot of people seem to enjoy um, my Instagram because it is the real deal with the kids. So, you know, the messiness of the house, I really try not to like, you know, curate for Instagram. So, and I, you know, there's a few ad things up there as well. That is, you know, that's the personal, the business, it's all combined at this point. This is me. Here it is. Cool. What's your, what's your handle for Instagram? Uh, what is it? It's Amy L Ferguson underscore the underscore at the end. Perfect. Well, we will include a link to that as well. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been awesome to chat. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.